0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And guys, I have been traveling all over the United States as part of another podcast I do called The Restless Ones. If you've not checked that out, you should definitely give it a listen. I talk to Chief technology officers, chief information officers, chief data officers, these really super smart folks who are shaping the way technology affects business, which means in turn it affects us. That show has been fantastic and a lot of work. It's also meant that I've been traveling a ton. So unfortunately, because of that, I didn't really have the time to fully research and write and prepare an episode ready to go for today. So we're going to listen to a classic episode of Tech Stuff instead, because I would rather do that than present a rushed, jerky kind of episode where you listen to it and think, he didn't even put forth any effort. I always want to give you the best I can. So don't worry, new episodes of Tech Stuff are right around the corner. I just didn't have it in me to get one out for today. So we're going to look back on a classic. This classic episode originally published on January 13th, 2014, and it's called How Ultrasound Works. And I sat down with Lauren Vogelbaum, who was my co-host at the time, to really talk about ultrasonic technology and what it's used for. I hope you guys enjoy it. Take a listen. As it turns out, humans have a certain range of sounds that a typical human can hear, keeping in mind that different people can hear different ranges. Uh, some may be able to hear a, a larger range. Some people like me are starting to lose some of that range. As and some
1: people are better at lower or higher ranges, sure. Um, the, the, the average is about 20 to 20,000 hertz yep. at the low and high end.
0: Right. So, uh, beyond 20,000 hertz, like usually significantly beyond 20,000 hertz at those higher frequencies, we call that Ultrasonic.
1: Oh, well, you don't quite get into ultrasonic um, right away. No, I mean, I mean, no. you know, you, you've still got a good audible range. I mean, like beluga whales, for example, can hear up to some like one hundred and twenty thousand hertz. Right. But that is still not ultrasonic.
0: Well, the true ultrasonic that we're looking at for at least the 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 uh, technology we'll be talking about today is in the one to one point five million hertz or megahertz range. So that's where we're getting to a point where, you know, animals are not detecting this kind of sound. It's at a pitch that's much higher Mm -hmm. than uh, a frequency that's much higher. Frequency and pitch I'm I'm using almost interchangeably, which is a little misleading, but uh, you get what I'm saying. So this is a technology that's very much based in some part on something that actual animals are using, some animals are using.
1: Uh, Right, echolocation.
0: Yep, and so that's something you probably heard about whenever you've you know, heard about things like bats or dolphins or whales, they all use echolocation as either a primary way of figuring out what their environment's like in the case of bats or uh, you know one of the many senses that they rely upon to explore their environments.
1: Uh right, humans also use this in the form of sonar or I mean really technically radar because we're talking about electromagnetic waves and and bouncing them off similar of stuff which, to which are acoustic similar. waves. Yeah. So mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, but sonar specifically is so that is like a sonic wave. So Uh, In fact, sonar was a very important development in our history because radar, as it turns out, was not the best thing to use for underwater because you'd have attenuation of those waves and you could never be really sure that the signals you were getting back were really accurate. Sonar is a much more accurate means of determining where something is underwater and whether it's moving towards you or moving away. We'll talk about more of that as we get further into this podcast because some of those basic principles – really determines some pretty cool uses of ultrasonic technology.
1: Uh, yeah, all of all of that history really builds upon um the terrific baby viewing devices that we know and love today. Yeah. Um. Although that is certainly not the only use for ultrasound, yeah. as we will also
0: get into. Yeah, I have a favorite one that I'll mention at the end. So uh, and it's one that I've talked about before on Tech Stuff, but that's OK. I don't mind repeating myself. All of you listeners out there who have been around for a while, you know this. So <laughs> I, I appreciate that you you humor me.
1: I'm, I'm glad that you know this about yourself, Jonathan.
0: Well, you know, it's you reach a certain age, you, you come to some truths. So first, before I even dive into the history of ultrasonic technology, I have to give a shout out to Dr. Jim Tsung. Uh, he has a presentation online called The History of Ultrasound and Technological Advances that gave me a lot of insight into the uh, the, the discoveries that led to ultrasonic technology. And that's where I, I drew a lot of this information. So big and ups to him.
1: Really, really good, clear, uh, yes. info in there. Yes.
0: Very, very simple kind of presentation. I did, you know, augment that with extra research, but it was sure. a great starting yes. point. So in 1794, that's where we have a fellow by the name of Lazaro Spalazzani who was, uh, observing the behavior of bats. And as he was observing their behavior, he began to hypothesize what it was that allowed bats to navigate through really dark terrain, being able to avoid things, be able to zero in on prey. And as he thought about it, he b- came up with this hypothesis that perhaps they were making these very high-pitched noises that were not necessarily within the range of human hearing. You might be able to hear a few squeaks now and then, but that's about it, but that they were also uh, uh, reacting to the echoes of those noises to hone in on things or to avoid obstacles.
1: Uh, right, to find out how far away or possibly even how big an obstacle or a predator or a piece of prey would be away from
0: them. Yeah, because if if you're if you're hearing an echo come back but it's not nearly as powerful as the sound you put out, you're you're uh the result might be, oh, that thing is close, but it's also small. Mm-hmm. If you get a lot of signal back, you're like, okay, there's something with a lot of surface area that's not too far away, and perhaps I don't want to go in that direction anymore. So he kind of, you know, was the one to propose this hypothesis of echolocation oh, in
1: 1794. In that's, seven, 1794.
0: Cool. Now, that's again one of those basic principles that we would build upon to get to ultrasonic technology. Uh, in 1826, you have Jean Daniel Colladon. Who was performing a series of experiments using a bell, like a church bell? It was okay. actually a church bell that he put underwater. He had a uh, another little lever that had a striker on the end of it to strike the bell. Okay. So, if you, I like to imagine it as one of those. You remember in the cartoons the boxing glove that's on the like accordion type thing uh-huh. that stretches out? That's essentially what I imagined this to be. <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly what it was. Uh, not according to the the illustration I saw, but those things are never accurate. So anyway. <laughs> there's this bell that's underneath the water and he has a striker under the water as well. And then about 10 miles away, according to the illustration, there was a second person in a boat who had a tube that went down into the water and they would essentially put their ear to the tube to listen in
1: like an ear piece and earphone. Yes. Mm-hmm. So
0: that they could, you know, would amplify any sounds they could maybe, you know, their and their job was to listen for the, the tone of the bell. And so, uh, he would, Colodon strikes the bell. The person in the other, uh, boat writes down exactly when they heard the, the tone. And the idea here was actually for Colodon to show that the sound would travel at a different speed through water than it did through the air. This was just to demonstrate. A hypothesis that sound traveled at different speeds through different media, something that we know to be true now.
1: Uh, right. And, and in fact, it travels uh, faster in water than it does the air.
0: Yeah. So depending upon how tightly packed the uh, molecules are and whatever it is that you're looking at, sound can travel much more quickly through some media than others. And it's because it's a very f- it's a physical media. It's not right. electromagnetic. It's actual mm-hmm. physical molecules banging into each other. So if they're more tightly packed, they bang in, into each other much more quickly, mm-hmm. so in that case, he was able to show that it indeed does travel at different speeds. Knowing that it travels at different speeds is also very important for the very basics of ultrasonic technology, which is why we're talking about in the first place. Right. So the 1826. our next date is 1880. We're just just we're scorching slu- through history. logging right along. <laughs> this is where Pierre and Jacques Curie. Discover the piezoelectric effect, which we have talked about quite a few times on tech stuff.
1: Ah, uh, right. This is this winds up being useful in many applications. But uh, yes. uh but,
0: but so what is it? Okay, so certain types of material, like for example, quartz crystals okay. have this this particular uh this particular feature where if you were to apply an electric charge to this material, it would vibrate. Or if you Uh, apply a mechanical stress to this object, it will then create an electrical charge. It's this weird reaction of, uh, electricity and actual kinetic movement energy that you're gonna see, uh, between the two things. And in the case of quartz crystals, it's really, really, uh, regular. You know, if you know the properties of the quartz crystal, you are good to go. You know that at a certain charge, it's always going to give off the same kind of vibration. So that's why quartz crystals are used in a lot of watches. It's actually one, the thing that helps keep time.
1: Oh, right, right. It creates the movement in quartz watches yep. because it is so regular or so, um, so predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, it also can, um, it, it's used to create a spark in the kind of gas lighters that are used for, for candles or cigarettes. And also, um, you know, it's being talked about for energy harvesting kind of materials that are, be, that are in research today.
0: Right. And now in the case of ultrasonic technology, this is important because the quartz crystals are the things in most ultrasonic uh, transducers that are creating the vibrations that themselves are these high frequency sound waves.
1: And with something as simple as electricity or relatively simple or, you know,
0: relatively technologically
1: um, possible to put (laughs) into an instrument. Right. Right. So
0: also, they're very important for picking the signals back up, as it yes. turns out. Well, we'll talk more about that when we get into the actual how it works stuff. But all of this, you know, again, plays into it. So 1915, you have Paul Langevin, who invents the hydrophone, which, again, very important. Uh This in this case, it's essentially a microphone that can go into the water uh, and it relies on the piezoelectric effect in order to. Uh, pick up signals in the water. What it's doing is it's detecting changes in pressure, which are, you know, that's what, you know, the sound that's moving through the water is changing the actual pressure that the, this hydrophone detects. The pressure changes affect the quartz crystals inside the hydrophone, which then generates the electricity, which then goes to another device that again interprets. Let's you read
1: it out and figure out.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or even convert it back over into sound so that you can listen to what's going on underneath. Uh, he got the, the, um, inspiration to really work on this after something that happened in 1912, which was when uh, Leonardo DiCaprio sank to the bottom of the ocean and froze to death.
1: Uh, Or, more historically speaking, is when the Titanic sank. I thought that's Um, what I just said. Well... Um, but, but yeah, yeah, the hydrophone was originally created in order to help detect icebergs and submarines and yeah, other and large, War, large War stuff. World War
0: I and World War II, it was uh-huh. really important. World War II is also really when sonar came into play. But before sonar, it was really just listening for stuff that you think uh, that should not be there and we need to get out of here. So 1937 or right thereabouts, a man named Carl Dusik who was a doctor with the University of Vienna begins to work on using ultrasound as a means of diagnosing brain tumors. Now, at this time, ultrasonic technology was mostly being used in those, those Water nautical applications. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But he thought, you know, this could probably tell you more about what's going on inside a person. The human
1: could, brain is filled with water.
0: Yeah, I, could, I mean, I, essentially. Yeah, I can totally figure out what's going on. Maybe if there's a tumor or something, I can detect it. Now, his approach is very different from what is used today. What we use today is a, a reflective technique where you send a signal through a person. It reflects off of various stuff. Yeah, various stuff. We'll go into more detail in the second half and uh, bounces back and then Is read
1: out by uh, a a receiver in the instrument.
0: Right, exactly. And then a computer kind of puts all that data together to make it meaningful to you. He was actually thinking about setting up two different ultrasonic transducers, one on either side of your noggin, and zapping straight through the brain. So he had a receiver on both sides and a transceiver on both sides. So you're sending signals simultaneously. And um, the idea was that he he thought... That the reflection would never be reliable enough for you to be able to have any sort of precise idea what's going on. Other people said that his particular techniques were, um, muddy. Like it was creating too much noise mm-hmm. because you had these two different sources going at it. And so. And some kind of, of interfering
1: signals. Right. And
0: right. Some of it's reflected back. Some of it keeps going through. And so uh, there are people who said that the information you would get back from this particular method uh was you know not terribly reliable. Uh Dusik, as it turns out would go on to uh be drafted into the Luftwaffe during World War II oh, wow. and actually would become a doctor treating head wounds uh for German soldiers. Um he would continue after the war to really be a proponent of ultrasonic technology being used in the medical field. However, he continued to say that he wanted the transmission effect was more important than the reflective effect. Uh, and ultimately, some researchers at MIT determined that the method that Dosik was using was creating all this noise I was talking about before, and that right. it really wasn't reliable. So, uh, history would end up switching gears, going the different direction and still using ultrasonic technology but in a different implementation than he did
1: uh, yeah and, and absolutely that pioneering kind of going like hey human bodies are full of liquid we can use this technology to look at them too Yeah, is and, pretty important and it's
0: sound it's not like it's ionizing radiation it's not something that's going to cause you some form of harm it's it's a physical sound
1: there, there are a couple of concerns that I've heard here and there sure. um, about, about the ultrasonic waves interfering or, or creating small bubbles or,
0: or various things like right, that right right but, but it's not an ionizing but, radiation radiation, yes. Which is the main difference between that and other imaging. Definitely material. better than x-rays. Yes. Uh, so 1948, that's when Dr. George Ludwig writes a paper describing the use of an ultrasonic device to diagnose gallstones. And in 1951, doctors Wilde and Neil began publishing studies on ultrasonic characteristics of benign versus malignant breast tumors.
1: Uh, Not intended as a detection tool, actually, but rather as a diagnostic tool once a tumor had been found.
0: So in other words, to determine whether or not this tumor, in fact, is benign or malignant. Right. So, yeah. So this is after we've already established that there is a presence of a tumor. Mm -hmm. 1958, we got Dr. Ian Donald, who I love his technical uh, title, which was professor of midwifery. At the University of Glasgow. Well, there you go. Yeah, he uh, pioneered OBGYN ultrasound, which is what most of us think about when we think of ultrasound devices in medical fields. I think it's. it's I, I
1: think for the common layperson, that is the application in which we have seen and heard it used.
0: Yeah, and it's it's certainly Third. one that. Oh no, that was kind of a pun. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't do it this time. So <laughs> it's it's certainly the thing that we see all the time in movies and television, and you know, it's the stereo. It's that's the typical. I mean, also, couple is in the hospital. Yeah. This is the picture of the baby. It's also, I mean, I just recently I, saw one because my sister's having yeah, a kid. Yeah,
1: a lot of people are born. Um, yeah, it turns so, out, yeah,
0: and it's a very popular way of, um, of...
1: Of imaging before. Exactly. I mean, you know, especially, and we'll we'll go into this a little bit more later, but, you know, it's, it's really terrific for figuring out what's going on with a baby without doing any kind of harm to the mother or the baby.
0: Right, right. You don't want anything that could potentially disrupt development or cause other complications. Right. Uh, so skipping way ahead, because obviously ultrasound by this time had been an established medical technology. It also was used in other uh, applications. We'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, skipping way ahead. 1989, we get to a point where Daniel Lichtenstein pioneers a point of care lung ultrasound in the ICU and says that ultrasound is the real stethoscope. At this wow. stage, we're talking about precision where uh it was much greater than anything that Dusik ever managed it was something where you could actually get a really accurate look and in some cases a three-dimensional look at what's going on inside a person without it being invasive yeah. or terribly invasive because <laughs> there are some al- there are some exceptions we'll talk about
1: yes uh but but this is mostly thanks to uh, advancements in computers and the digitization of ultrasound
0: exactly so we're going to talk a lot more about how this actually works what's really going on with this stuff but before we get into that Let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, so we're back. Let's talk about how ultrasonic technology actually works. You have to be able to have something that creates an ultrasonic signal, and it has to be able to pick up that ultrasonic signal, and then it has to be able to interpret that signal. So these are these are some important elements that again would only have been possible due to the work of the people we talked about in the first half. Right. So, uh, your basic, your basic approach here, this is before I get into any of the actual, here's the technical stuff that's going on is you've got a device that sends the signal out, which then encounters the various tissue barriers in a person's body, uh, for ultrasonic medical imaging anyway. Mm -hmm. So, uh, as it encounters these barriers, some of those ultrasonic uh, waves are going to bounce back. Right. So the machine starts to collect the data of the materi- of the waves that bounce back. The intensity of those waves and the length of time it took for them to go out and bounce back give the idea of things like the depth and the nature of the tissue itself. The, uh, some of the waves will continue to penetrate into the patient's body and then bounce off other boundaries. So these boundaries are things like boundaries between liquids and soft tissue or soft tissue and hard tissue. So uh, an organ and bones, that kind of thing. And as the uh, waves go and bounce back, we start to be able to look at that data and determine what kind of tissue it was going through because,
1: because we know that, uh, that these sound waves travel at different speeds through different types of
0: Material. Yeah, exactly. So by knowing, you know, if you know that sound travels at such and such a speed as it goes through bone, which then, we know, yeah, we do know. I
1: mean, I don't know it. Uh, I don't. I, mean, I don't no. have this figure. We don't
0: personally know, but yes. humankind knows. Huh. People smarter than. You know, you have that thing where you just trust that people smarter than you are working on the problem. In this case, it's true. So
1: not so much working as much as have already completely figured it out. (laughs) There there, are are charts that you can look at. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So the the computer, which we'll talk about in a second, takes all this data in and is able to analyze it and determine which waves were the ones that pass through liquid, which ones were the ones that pass through soft tissue, which ones pass through hard tissue, and then Adding all that information together is able to create a picture that is then displayed on a display. It, it sends the information to a display so that you get essentially a virtual representation of whatever it is that's there. And typically, it's two-dimensional. So we'll, we'll talk a bit about 3D uh, uh, ultra it's a rel- relatively Sonic. new um, yeah. development in the but field. But it, it is certainly possible. But your traditional ultrasonic uh, images are two-dimensional. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like a, a side view or top-down view, depending upon the angle that's being used and what you are specifically trying to image. Right. right? So uh, it's a really cool approach. Now, the parts that are on an ultrasonic machine include the transducer probe.
1: Which we've talked a little bit about, right? Yep. This That's, is the device that is sending and receiving the signals. Yep.
0: That's got at least one quartz crystal in it. It may have multiple quartz crystals in it. And in fact, if it does have multiple quartz crystals, you can uh, time the different crystals to fire at different, you know, you, have, you send charges to them at different times. because uh, Each right. one has its own independent circuit. Yeah. And that allows you to, quote unquote, steer the ultrasonic beam and be able to get a lot more precision about what's going on. Um but uh, even if it only has one crystal, it can still send and then receive. So what's happening is you send an electrical charge to the crystal. The crystal vibrates at this incredibly high frequency, which creates this ultrasonic sound
1: uh, like one to one point five megahertz.
0: Yeah. Right? And you're talking about possibly millions of these in a uh, millions of pulses in a single second. They go into the body and start to bounce off of stuff. Mm-hmm. When the sounds bounce back to the transducer probe, they hit the quartz crystal which causes the quartz crystal to vibrate, which then causes the electric charge to emanate. So because of that piezoelectric effect, it mm-hmm. works both ways. The device picks up the electric charges, and that's what it's able to use to interpret the actual data that is gathered and sent onto the computer. Uh, so the computer, it's a CPU, it's, you know, it's a computer. It it processes data. It crunches numbers. It follows specific rules that have been programmed in that take into account all the basic information that we understand about how sound travels. So that's how it's able to build the actual useful information. And
1: generates this image on the screen.
0: Right. Uh, then you also have controls. Big surprise there, right? So the controls allow you to do things like uh, you have a medical practitioner who's called an ultrasonographer. Um, so the ultrasonographer can adjust things like the amplitude of the ultrasonic waves, their frequency, the duration of the pulses that the transducer probe is creating.
1: Uh, Right. The the precise frequency of the waves greatly affects the resolution of the resulting image. So this is really important.
0: Yes, it really is. It also will determine how far the pulses can penetrate. And on top of all those other things, you also have a storage medium of some sort. You want to save this data, obviously. That might be on a disk uh, or it might be on a, a, you know, just a hard drive or whatever, but it has to have some sort of storage medium. Right. And also probably so it's some. Straight
1: to the cloud. Yeah, to
0: the cloud, which is possible now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also a printer so that you can print out an image. You know, if you so, want to. Yeah.
1: yeah. Especially in the case of babies. I think that it's it's used more often in that case than. um
0: Yeah. Than, than necessarily. Like, uh, here's how your like heart isn't clots. working. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, maybe if you want to collect that sort of thing, maybe you do. I'm not judging, but no, uh, that's exactly my sister showed me a, uh, a picture from her ultrasound, so I got to see my niece or nephew uh, early, so that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, the that's that's your basic parts of the ultrasonic device. Keeping in mind that other, you know, more advanced ones may have other uh, elements to them, but that's that's what is kind of the bare requirements for you to have an ultrasonic medical device. Right. So the only uh, other thing I need to mention is that those those transducer probes also tend to have some sort of a absorbent material that will allow it to absorb any uh Echoes that would come from the probe itself, because otherwise you would get false uh, readings. Right. Right. So because you don't want the crystal to just start vibrating as soon as something bounces off the interior of the probe and comes right back at the crystal. So that's what the absorbent material is for. It's designed so that it'll try and direct. There's actually an acoustic lens that directs the sound toward the patient's body. So that's the basics. But, uh, you know, there, we mentioned already there's a little bit more than just the basic uh, display and imaging. There's this whole three dimensional approach. Um, so first of all, to get the unpleasant parts out, not all ultrasound is non invasive.
1: Uh, right. Um, it's not always external. Uh, there was recent controversy about this, um, in, in, uh, a- abortion law
0: oh i did not know this uh
1: it, r- right well it's it's the trans transvaginal ultrasound gotcha. that was in
0: i see contest right. so
1: yeah um because because sometimes um for, for for many applications you're looking at something in the body that is not the most easily accessed from the outside right so by by inserting a probe with an ultrasound uh uh Bit on yeah. on the end mm-hmm. into an orifice of one kind or another. Mm-hmm. Um, you can determine many things about many important internal organs.
0: Yep. So this is a uh, you know it's probably a little less uh, glamorous and comfortable than your typical ultrasound, but it's very important. Mm-hmm. And it's still in the grand scheme of things, like you know, it's hard to say it's non-invasive because you're talking about inserting something into an orifice. But less invasive than the, say surgery. Yeah, exploratory surgery, way more invasive. Mm-hmm. So it's uh you know it's Either way, there's some approaches now where you can actually create three dimensional images of stuff using ultrasound. And it's pretty much what you would expect. You're, you're, you're moving the, uh, the device, the transducer probe, whether it's internal or external, and you're trying to get multiple different views of whatever it is you're imaging. So in the case of a baby, it would be the baby. And, uh, you might have to have the patient shift around, or uh, mm-hmm. in order to to, to get all the different angles. angles. But yeah, the computer takes in all that data and then creates a three dimensional model of whatever it is it's, it, that it's encountered, and then you can look at that on the screen. So this can be used in all sorts of medical approaches, and uh, one of the things it relies upon is another uh, basic physical property that or of uh, the universe of uh, sound right? waves yeah mm-hmm. that we talked about before actually it's of any real waves the doppler effect
1: uh right the and that's the thing that, that describes how waves change shape when they encounter moving objects
0: yeah so uh, whether you whether the observer is moving or something is moving toward an observer this affects the way sound uh sounds to us this is the way we perceive sound it also affects the waves themselves so let's say that uh that lauren is uh is screaming at a a uh, a single constant tone, constant, constant pitch. pitch perfect pitch but she is just screaming and i'm running toward her which is probably what's causing the screaming uh, to me, the pitch is going to sound higher in nature than someone who's standing right next to Lauren wondering why she's screaming. And for the person who's running away from Lauren, because that person knows when Lauren screams, that's bad news, it sounds like it's a lower pitch. Now, that's because as I'm running towards Lauren, those waves, the sound waves coming toward me are actually compressed, right?
1: Uh-huh. And uh, and as you would run away from a noise, the sound waves lengthen and therefore deepen in pitch. Yep.
0: Yeah. So this Doppler effect, if you know what the Doppler effect is and you're able to measure it properly, you can actually use that to your advantage to determine the location of a moving object, whether it's moving towards you or away. Uh, in this case, it's being used to help create that three-dimensional model. Hey there, it's Jonathan from 2020 here to mention that we're going to take another quick break about ultrasonic technology, and we'll be right back. The Doppler effect method is mainly used for very specific types of imaging. Not all 3D uh, imaging is using this. Mostly it's stuff where you want to measure something really subtle like blood flow through veins. So,
1: uh, right. In, in, in early experiments with this, an intravenous contrast agent would be introduced. Um, but then as the method was honed, we've, we've become able to detect movement of the blood cells themselves via change in
0: pitch. That's pretty amazing. And it's really useful. I mean, it's for diseases that are largely invisible to us. Right.
1: Oh, right. Right. Anything vascular, you know, finding clots or monitoring flow in risky patients, you know, like like after a stroke or a transplant or a surgery, um, as well as finding cancerous tumors uh, based on on the way that the blood flow is being affected by the tumor.
0: It's pretty phenomenal. I mean, it, I I really find this stuff. Truly amazing. It, so
1: it really became possible only with the digital revolution of the 1980s, like we were saying mm-hmm. earlier. Um, because, you know, computers made it possible to, to a more precisely shape that ultrasonic beam, mm-hmm. as we, as we mentioned, and, and be to, to use multiple beams from multiple angles simultaneously, which is that, um, that multi quartz action that we were talking about.
0: Yeah. And you're talking about an enormous amount of data. So it has to be a powerful computer just to crunch all the numbers properly. Mm-hmm. So as, as those. Uh, technologies have improved so have the techniques so let's talk a little bit about what it would be like to go in and have to have an ultrasound procedure done Mm -hmm. because a lot of people i think have only seen this on television shows or movies
1: yeah um i if 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 this isn't complete tmi um i have actually had an ultrasound done um i i go in for a mammogram every year and in addition to uh the mammogram they also do an ultrasound all right So. so
0: so tell me if i got any of this wrong because I have not gone in for an ultrasound, so I, but I based it off of a great article called How Ultrasound Works from howstuffworks.com. <laughs> Plug. So, uh, typically what you have is a patient comes in, uh, and removes his or her clothing.
1: Uh, or whatever clothing would be in the way specifically of the ultrasound equipment.
0: Sure. Because yeah. you
1: don't want to pick up the cloth. That right.
0: wouldn't be useful. Right. That would, that would be, uh, that would corrupt the signal. Mm-hmm. So you would be, that would make things, uh, more difficult. Uh, Also, it could end up just, uh, even if it didn't directly interrupt the signal, it could cause the probe to not be flush against the skin, which could cause problems.
1: Uh, Right. uh, Along those lines.
0: Uh, Yes. So we're getting into the jelly, aren't we? The mineral oil-based jelly. You might wonder if you've ever seen... That's Vaseline, essentially. Yeah. But but if you've ever seen uh, any other movies where they... They're spreading the the jelly uh, over a patient's skin before using the ultrasound. You're wondering why. It's so that they can seal up any air pockets that would have formed between the transducer probe and the skin of the patient.
1: Uh, right. Because like we've said before, since sound waves move differently through different media, uh, when you've got air in the way, that's going to cause some problems.
0: Right. So you don't want any air in the way. That's mm-hmm. why the jelly's used. So in case you were ever wondering, that's the purpose. Now, uh, at that point, you have the machine uh, sending through those ultrasonic signals through the patient and picking up the results. And through the
1: probe, through the, through the probe, probe,
0: through the patient. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, those sounds are reflecting off of the various tissues within the patient, coming back through the probe, sending those signals back to the CPU, which then interprets them and sends the signals to a display uh, which may or may not be in view of the patient, depending upon what the procedure is.
1: Uh-huh. And depending on, you know, whether the patient is is conscious or whether they want to be looking at it. Yep. Um, and uh, the, the tech could at that point mark areas for further investigation right. um, if needed.
0: Yep. And then that's uh, information is usually recorded onto the storage media so that it can be part of the patient's record. And uh, then that's the patient is pretty much allowed to. Uh, well, they're they're cleaned up. You know, get the jelly. Yes, yes.
1: They give you a towel. Yeah. So you,
0: you clean yourself up, <laughs> then you put your clothes on and that part of the examination is done. So it's pretty simple, uh, in the grand scheme of things. It's like, as, like we said, a, your basic, uh, ultrasonic, uh, uh, investigation there is non-invasive. So that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, now beyond the diagnoses, they're actually looking at using ultrasonic technology to do some treatments. So it's not just a, a tool that's used to check up on someone or uh, get another look at something that may or may not be a problem. In some cases, they're talking about using it to to treat medical conditions, often with nanotechnology. Although one of the coolest ones I read about recently is another diagnostic tool, not a medical treatment tool. It's a nano device that's an, a nano-sized ultrasonic transducer that can actually image the interior of a cell, an oh, individual wow. living cell. That's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty neat. When you can get that precise, that's pretty phenomenal.
1: Uh, yeah, we we talked in a previous episode, our our one about gene therapy from December twenty thirteen, mm-hmm. a little bit about one of the other applications, um, which is uh, uh using using ultrasound waves to um to push Little kind of nano bubbles of of either medication right. or or genes or whatever you want to get inside a cell over to to where you want them, and then also using that ultrasound wave to burst them at yeah. the
0: appropriate time. It, so that becomes a, a method of delivery where you're actually maneuvering medication to some specific location, which that that's seems to be the big approach right now using ultrasonic or other technologies that are externally applied to get nano based medicines to the right location, because we haven't reached a point yet where we have little like nano sized spaceships that can go straight to where they need to go and then deliver the medical payload. So uh, a lot of the actual controls are not, you know, because we've talked about nano robots before this idea of a autonomous or even semi just semi autonomous machine that can move through the body. We are not there yet. But what we can do is create nano sized uh, particles that can be manipulated externally through things like ultrasonic frequencies, which is kind of cool. And, you know, speaking of using ultrasonic technology in fun ways, here's a fun way that ultrasonic technology used to be used. So back in the 70s, Lauren, there used to be an era called the 1970s.
1: I do not remember that era because I was not born yet.
0: I was alive during this era. So uh, in the early 1970s, a lot of uh, televisions that were coming out that had remote controls often, not always, but often would use ultrasonic frequencies to be the signals that would send it to the television so that you could turn it on or off or the volume or change the channel or whatever. Uh, so you would push a button, and often it was just on or off. Like, that was sometimes the only control that you had.
1: Oh, sure. I mean, we we didn't have 98 channels in those days anyway. No, it was usually,
0: so. usually about, you know, between you'd have the channels 2 through 13 and then a UHF channel. Anyway, you could turn the t- set on or off using this device, and it would send this ultrasonic frequency that you could not hear, but it would be picked up by the television, and it would do whatever it was supposed to do. The fun thing was that you could actually trigger this accidentally if you were messing around with something else like uh, I had uh, had an uncle who talked about how um, he thought it was amazing when he accidentally turned off the television because he was carrying um, a a, uh, a, like a a container of, of nuts and bolts he was going huh. to do a project and he tripped and dropped them and they hit the tiled floor. And oh. the and some of them must have created this ultrasonic frequency that was the exact same frequency that told the TV to turn off. And so it did. And so he was wondering what was wrong with his television. And it wasn't until, you know, some further experimentation that he figured out, oh, so sound. Chris Pellett, the the he used to change the channel or turn this television off by playing with a slinky. So, um, yeah, fun times. Now, these days, kids, uh, they're using either infrared or Wi Fi signals or some crazy thing like that. Mm-hmm. So you can play with a slinky all day long in front of your television and nothing's going to happen unless you happen to have a. Infrared uh, slinky? Or a mischievous sibling with a remote control who is like, wow, look at what you're doing! Which could either be really funny or, you know, build you up for a terrible letdown later.
1: Oh. Ultrasound can also be used to keep your car windshield clean. Say what? Seriously, okay. uh, the, the the vibrations bounce rain debris, like bugs, whatever, right off of your of your windshield. Um, there's a high end British car company called McLaren that is looking to bring this tech to consumer cars. Um, assuming that you're a consumer with you know over two hundred thousand dollars.
0: That wraps up this classic episode of tech stuff about how ultrasound works. Uh, It's a fascinating technology, something that uh, the more I looked into it, the more I was surprised. This idea of using actual frequencies of sound in order to learn more about stuff like what's going on inside us, for example, uh, beyond all the other applications. So it's a phenomenal use of technology in physics, something that I truly find fascinating. I hope you guys enjoyed this retrospective look back at a a historic Tech Stuff episode. We'll be back with new episodes next week. Can't wait to talk to you then. If you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, reach out on social media. You can find us on both Facebook and Twitter. We have the handle techstuffhsw, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.